Good morning, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Culture Shock Podcast. I'm your host, Dave, and today we are joined by one of my oldest friends. It's a friendship that has spawned nearly 25 years, and not only is he one of my close friends, but he's oftentimes been one of my closest collaborators, be it in uh, playing in bands or, uh, in fact, my very first podcast he was a part of. Uh, in fact, if you go back to the early episodes, episode two, I believe, of this podcast, he was part of the roundtable that, that kick-started the Culture Shock podcast. Jason is a, has, has his own podcast now. He's actually got several podcasts, uh, most notably The Regrettable Century, and um, he is one of the most intelligent and insightful individuals that I know. And I couldn't think of anyone better to have a conversation centered around not only just the recently released Matrix Resurrection, which really only serves as a sort of a framework for us to have our larger conversation, but the larger conversation being centered around this real-world Matrix that we have created for ourselves. And not in, you know, sort of the weird conspiratorial way that you hear people sometimes talking about it. I'm talking about the structure of our society that we have built a society that, whether we are conscious of it or not, perhaps is far more limiting in the same way that is it is shown in a movie like The Matrix than we perceive. So we explore the realities of our freedom. We explore our role in maintaining the status quo of this machine, of this system that runs this world. And we explore what we can ultimately do of it. I think there are moments in this podcast that might seem cynical. And frankly, if you listen to this podcast long enough, that shouldn't surprise you. But ultimately, you must see where you are. You must see what you're not before you can decide the next steps to become what you want to be. So with that being said, and without further ado, my guest today, Jason from The Regrettable Century. The Davey Havoc of podcast. My friend since he was a child and I was a child, Jason from the regrettable century, um, the grand, what's the, what, how many, how many podcasts are you on at this point at any given moment? Uh, I maintain about three. Yeah. That's um, why you're the Davey Havoc a podcast. I was going to, I was going to ask what on earth did I do to deserve that title, but just being a bunch of podcasts. Yeah. So the regrettable century is AFI and uh, final conflict is, it's like black audio. Uh, black audio, yeah. And then and then measures taken is the uh, dream car. Okay, that's not bad. That's a that's a good mixture of of uh, uh, creative outlets for you. Is so far as talking over um, over the internet is concerned. <laughs> What's the band where he um, sings about how he wants to kill people because they like to drink? Extremist. Yeah, I don't have that one yet. Just you could skip that one. Just My, skip that. Skip that podcast and jump straight to the Ramon X podcast. I think the podcast version of that would be like, uh, like YouTube truck rants. Yeah. Like oh, you need to while you're in while you're in Texas, you need to get find a truck, and and you just need to you know with your phone in in vertical record you just like and you got to start with like this really grinds my gears like that's and then just go on some insipid rant that no one cares about. Yeah, well, I'll do it in my in my BW Beetle. That way, it'll be like, you know, put my own spin on it. There you go. In that Danzig shirt. Yeah. 
This is the only shirt I'm going to wear from now on. So I, you've been on the podcast before. We did some roundtables, but never one-on-one. And I wanted you on anyway because at the time that we're recording this, we're recording this on, on New Year's Eve. This will come out in a few weeks. But, you know, we're about to, uh, you know, it's about to be a new year that will likely be the same as the last two years. And I just wanted to wax existential with you. But then I saw The Matrix, the new Matrix movie. And I thought, this is an opportunity for us to use it as a launching point to discuss, I think, some things that are relevant to my initial conception of what this conversation would be. But but using that Matrix as sort of a framework to examine some of those things. So I guess we'll just start with, what was your initial impression of that movie? Um. Well, so there are two things I have to say about it. The first one is not very helpful. <laughs> um, and I'll say it in my, my um, crankiest old guy voice, or, or at least not, not a voice so much as a tone, but uh, movies today have too many damn special effects. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in terms of what it, uh, what it actually has to say, uh, which I think is a more interesting thing to talk about, is uh, first impressions. I think that the, this film, and actually this whole series of films, um, the better and the worse ones, they all they kind of speak to two things that I think are deeply felt across our society. And uh, one of them is the like deep yearning for uh, what the real world ought to be. Like this mm-hmm. feeling that like this has got to be wrong. Like yeah. whether you mean that literally like in a conspiracy theory way in, in the sense of the film, or if you just mean it in the sense of like, somewhere over some amount of time that's passed for me, it's about a hundred years now we've like took a wrong turn and everything feels like we're in the wrong place because we're not supposed to be here. Um, So that's the first thing. Sorry. This is not a, this is not a quick point. Uh, The second thing is that I think it, uh, it raises really important questions about just like what is one to do with that. And uh, all we've ever been able to come up with or all we've been able to come up with in my lifetime is a, trying to fucking explain it and getting really frustrated that people don't know or whatever. The problem is everybody thinks they're the only ones that know. So whether you, you know, whether you're on one side or the other side of any given issue, everybody else needs to wake up. And so it, it speaks not only to our sense of not being able to uh, deal with the world as it is, but also our inability to do anything about it. That, that was a big point for me because I, you know, I honestly, could not give an honest opinion as to the value of it as a movie for entertainment purposes. I, I kind of went into it looking for the philosophy behind it. And I kind of stayed in that, that mode of thinking. Uh, And I I actually need to probably need to go back and just watch it as a a movie to see if I even enjoy it in that context. Um, But what I, but I, what I came away from it was I've not stopped thinking about what it was at least attempting to do and to say um but i i agree with you i uh, an over an overarching theme across the entire series is that this world that we live in sucks it's not right it doesn't fit us we don't fit into it it feels artificial and ironically when you said that movies have too much special effects in them i don't think that was a throwaway point because there's uh, I don't remember the term. Maybe you know the term, but there's this there's this uh, phenomenon where things are close enough to reality, but just slightly off, and it's and it's really disruptive for us, and it feels fake. 
And I think that's what a lot of people get. That's I think that's what a lot of people are trying to to say when they uh, have complaints about CGI is that it looks so realistic, but not. And yet, if someone does uses practical effects, you know, it might look very fake. But yet, for some reason, it's so much more immersive, and we can sort of accept it as as being real, even though it's like a obviously a puppet being manipulated. Is that um, it's on the tip of my tongue? Is it is it the uncanny valley? Is that the it, I, that term? sounds that sounds right? That sounds it's like right. it's it's like whenever you uh, are re- kind of revolted by the fact that something that you know to not be like quite real still evokes the the emotion in you that an engagement with the real thing like we, this is specific particularly with like you know human interactions like like a robot or a CG or whatever that you like you interact with it or you, you absorb it and, and you feel the emotional response that an actor would, a good performance of an actor would, would give you, but you know that they're not there. And it's just this kind of like subconscious sense that like, this isn't quite right for some right. reason. Right. You know, you're, you're right. It is called the uncanny Valley. And the, the actual definition is the, in aesthetics, the uncanny Valley is the hypothesized relation between an object's degree of resemblance to a human being and the emotional response to the object. The concept suggests that humanoid objects that imperfectly resemble actual human beings provoke uncanny or strangely familiar feelings of eeriness and revulsion in observers. And so I, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I certainly know that when I've watched a film and I've thought there's too much special effects, there's too much, in particular CGI and digital aspect to it, I think that that uncanny valley is kind of what I'm tapping into. Yeah. Um, you know, you see when people, when people, when they were doing those de-aging, like, I don't know if you saw the Irishman or, Oh yeah. You know, or man, like princess Leia as a, like a well, young woman in the later yes. Star Wars films. It yes. really bothered me. It, it It's unsettling. And I think that's important because the movie is kind of insinuating the same thing, but in life. There is this relationship that not everyone clearly, and maybe not even the majority of people, but there, that that people sense, people who are who are maybe either born into or grew to being disconnected from society, that when they look out at the world around them, there is this uncomfortableness that exists. Uh, you know, be it because they live in a in a concrete locked city, devoid of trees and changing leaves and rain or clouds and or, or or they find themselves stuck in a shopping center. I'll, I'll give you an example. I was um, traveling recently, and I was in an airport. I was in Detroit, actually, Detroit. And I happened to be listening to the soundtrack to Cyberpunk 2077. So That's it's got this, Yeah, it's got this real electronic beat. And I don't know if you've ever been in the Detroit airport, but they have a, a monorail inside. So it's kind of futuristic-y. It's a pretty advanced... Uh, airport, especially for Detroit of all cities, which you know has in there's some areas in Detroit that are that that I've filmed in Detroit and doubled it for worn, torn Eastern Europe. Yeah. You know? So, um, but as I was walking around this airport, and and I'm sure by virtue of the influence of the music I was listening to, I could not help but look at people and ask myself what makes them real, what makes them a human. Like I, I could see, I could allow my imagination to take me to a world where I'm surrounded by near identical copies 
of humanity. And I think that's mostly just by virtue of sort of feeling disconnected from society, feeling disconnected from community, right? Mm-hmm. People are just moving by us. Uh, there's this, there's this uh, TikTok that someone did. It was like one of those non-playable characters in a video game that are sort of walking by you, but not really interacting with you in any meaningful way. And, and how kind of silly and strange it can sometimes look when you harass those non-playable characters. I think a lot of us sort of walk through life in that with that same sensation. And I certainly think that the Matrix movies in general have always sort of insinuated that there are many of us that, mm-hmm. that deep down feel like this isn't – something isn't right. What that is, whether or not we can articulate what that is – and certainly, and, and that will get to this movie, but what we can do about it, I think is still the great unknown. But I think that the shared experience of not feeling comfortable is a is something that's very relatable and growing amongst people. Yeah, I would say that like, uh, I think it is, it's, I think you're right. It's like a generalized sort of ennui that everybody feels. And I don't think that it has a, I, I think it kind of it speaks to everyone. Because regardless of the values a person holds, um, the overall sense that there's just no way for you to really participate, that all you really can do is be a spectator to events and those events are wrong and you understand that they're wrong, but nobody else seems to. And you can't really find, you don't even know if what they're saying they even really believe, even if you you know, your interactions are all superficial and it's maddening, but it's also like, it's, it's, it, it appeals to everybody for the same reason. So mm-hmm. like, like I think, let's say it's the 1930s and you live in Germany, you know, what's wrong. The economy's collapsed. The countries that you lost the war to are uh, exacting huge amounts of uh, repayment for like war reparations. They're occupying the industrial heartland that might get your country back on track. And you start to develop a sense of like, you know, if you have a super right wing view of it, maybe it's, you know, Jews and foreigners, whatever. And if it's a super left wing one, it's capitalists and whatever. But like, there's a sense that there's a general problem. It's, it's discernible. And that because it's discernible, you can talk about it and you can act upon it and other people will come along with you. Mm-hmm. So like, that's so it's, which is to say, I guess that it's kind of like it's an apolitical world we live in, which actually mm-hmm. hurts more because you can't even really figure out why you're frustrated with other people other yeah. than just that the world is frustrating and they're a part of it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think that you know, there will be spoilers. But again, by the time this podcast comes out, some weeks will have passed. So warning spoilers of the movie. The one of the themes of it or at least one of the the one of the voices that Lana Wachowski is trying to to share through this movie is the idea of art being taken away and being made into commerce mm-hmm. and there's a famous line in there which i thought was very on the nose and there's, a, there's i guess there's a few things in this movie that are on the nose but there's a line in there where uh, Thomas Anderson the neo Keanu Reeves is back in the matrix and he's actually been given the role as the designer of the Matrix, which in this world is a series of video games, interactive video games. And there's, it's, it's very this very meta quality to the film, wherein scenes from the first movie are playing in these 
these weird like uh, replications again the sort of uncanny replications that are, are appearing in front like are, are mirroring it but not quite right and she taught and and there's a moment where thomas anderson and smith his business partner are talking and they're saying warner brothers is going to make a new matrix movie or video game whatever uh with or without his input and that's based on real life the warner brothers actually was going to make another matrix movie with or without the wachowski's influence and it feels like a good portion of this film is dedicated to this idea of trying to take back or at least identifying when something deeply personal becomes swallowed by the spectacle but as as transgressive as that may seem on paper you're still making a movie for warner brothers right. so it in the end that, yeah yeah in the end you're you're to, to your point that we know something is wrong, but we're not quite sure how to deal with it. I, I it's like, even in this instance, even if, if you're, if you, if you make a movie for the sole purpose of being a fuck you to the studio and, and maybe you have a, a growing distrust and disgust with the studio system, even in that, even in that angry, strongly worded letter of a movie, you're still just, working for that same system you're still playing a role for that same system and and if that movie makes a lot of money then that warner brothers doesn't care if you like throw them under the bus they'll just laugh all the way to the bank right it's it's i i think like it's i feel bad for i do too people who make who are making these films because it's like it's this is the end result of an understanding of we're freaking understanding let's i don't want to pretend like anybody's a dupe this is the end result of having uh, a critique and no outlet so that all that there is is like letting people know mm-hmm. so you can you know people got to wake up this kind of like everybody needs to wake up mentality uh this is the end result of it well now they're all awake well now what just, just do it again you know yeah because there is no there's no actionable item here, you know. You just continually kind of have to rehash the fact that everything's really bad, everything's really awful, and the thing is, people want to hear it because it speaks to them in some way. Mm-hmm. Until it starts to be muted, defanged, and it and it's I mean, I, it's a good comparison would be like Rage Against the Machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they want to talk about Mumia Abu Jamal and Zapatismo and the, you know uh, NAFTA and World Trade and uh, like the Iran Contra, and they want to want to educate people, whatever. And the, but now people know, and then it's like, well, I really love this band, and so then they're going to go see this band, and it's this huge success, selling records. And now you may as well be going to see Corn or whatever <laughs> other band is playing. I'm trying to think of like this is the mid to late '90s, so whatever Limp Biscuit. And it turns out Jason is a huge Corn fan. Don't. <laughs> just, he's got. A, he's actually got. A, it's not a Danzig shirt on. It's actually a Corn shirt. I, I honestly, I don't think I could tell you a corn song. Freak on a leash. I know the title. Uh, I don't know what it sounds like, but well, I'm sure it sounds like. <laughs> um, but it's like it's this. This is that frustration, just kind of like manifest over and over again. There isn't anything you can do with this, and so in some ways, it's like the '90s, like the Matrix, the original Matrix, was like a perfect film for the end of the '90s. It's like you've kind of come up against the end of the awakening, and mm. there's the sense that, you know, you have a role to play now in uh, helping uh, awaken others. But now in 2021, 
we're still doing that because we haven't come up with anything else. And so it seems cheap and it seems kind of phony. And in a way it sort of is, you know, best intentions of the filmmakers aside, there's only so far you can go with something like that. Well, I think the better analogy, the more direct analogy is exactly what you and I are doing right now. Yes. What we're doing right now is a representation. We're like in the matrix, man. Yeah. (laughs) Take the red pill. No, I mean, look, this podcast, your podcast, like again, our intentions aside, we might influence uh, or, or say something or offer some insight that, that someone will listen to and say, Eureka, there's a better way of living perhaps. But, but probably the best we can do is share our pessimistic attitude and existential dread with other mm-hmm. people who will then also not have an outlet to actually have any sort of meaningful change. You know, this yeah. podcast, your podcast, uh, any inspirational tweet online, they, they just, they're, the nature of the medium is, is plays right into the people that you're complaining about, right? How am I going to share this podcast? Well, it's going to be on Spotify, and it's going to be on iTunes, and it's going to be on Amazon Music, and it's going to be posted on Twitter. And, you know, I can complain about all these things, and I can highlight the evil of these Lex Luthers. But in the end, I'm just I'm just still working in their own little digital factory. Yeah. And I, so I, even if you got even if every person who listened was like, that's it, I'm not going to engage in, you know, I'm going to unplug or whatever. I don't think it are, would actually, are we? I don't even think that that would, even if it, even if it was happening, even if, even if there was a way to unplug and I and I'm, don't believe that there is, I just don't think it would matter. I don't think well, it would, I don't think it would like bring things down. It's like, there's a reason why at the end of Fight Club, they actually just blow everything up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, when, and what's funny is, have you read the book Fight Club? I haven't. So in the end, uh, you know, the movie ends with like everything just being destroyed and, cue the the cool pixie song and it's a beautiful image right of these two destructive people holding hands while the world collapses around them but in the book he ends up in a mental institution after having tried to kill tyler durden aka himself and um and the people who work in the institution are just followers like the movement moves beyond the person and it ends on a down note it ends with like all that you read and all that you've done was for nothing because the the Pandora's box has been opened and and now the the ideas have their own legs and have spread and uh, all your heroics were for naught. Yeah, I mean honestly that's something that resonates more with me because I think that's let's forget uh, trying to imagine or divine what the filmmakers intentions are um with these kinds of films today, right? Like I actually, Netflix gave me this, mm-hmm. you know, this this term for them that kind of makes me throw up on my mouth a little bit. It calls them anti-system movies because that's a category, <sighs> right? So it's like, but these anti-system yeah. movies, no matter what anyone's trying to say, the end result is this feeling that like, I'm going fucking crazy because, yeah. you, because you're just, you're, you're, your world is saturated with either, uh, the hostile world that you're, you're either saturated with a hostile world you live in or your hostility toward it. And you're just being put pulled in every direction. You can't do anything about it. And you scream about it to the, you know, into the void basically. And then the end result of that is the void. That's metaphors. No good. <laughs> it hands it back to you. It says, Hey, that's, 
I'm really glad that you're uh, getting something out of this. It's really, it's really good that you, uh, you found something that you enjoy. Here's some more. It's like, no, fuck you. I don't like you, but I guess I'll, I'll watch another one. I mean, what else am I going to do? Right. Right. It, well, it, feels, and it just feels bad. Well, and that's really the themes of the tr- original trilogy, right? If the first movie was essentially a, uh, a hyper stylized metaphor for the allegory of the cave. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and the subsequent movies trying to expand upon that, adding in marks and um, the spirit of capitalism and things of that nature. In the end, in the in that original trilogy, what it, what Neo essentially is is a is a is a, a very important component to the Matrix. His job, his role as the anomaly, is to systematically reboot the Matrix, and uh, Zion is destroyed in a cyclical fashion. But he'll take twenty five new people out of the Matrix, and they'll do this whole song and dance over and over again. And it's that false sense of rebellion that actually keeps the matrix stable because without that, the whole system would collapse. It's, it's a, it's a further extension from the dialogue that uh, the monologue rather that agent Smith gives to Morpheus, wherein they originally created this perfect society, this utopia and people rejected it. So now they've created something more, uh, more of a facile of the, the late 20th century. But even in that, even in that construct that has all the, the, uh, the drama and tensions and war and, and things that sort of define the late era 20th century, there's this idea of hope and rebellion and salvation that are essentially just part of keeping the matrix running, just keeping the system running without it being exposed. It's kind of like, um, <laughs> some people might get mad about this, but it makes me think about the, uh, the experience of the, the, the cycle from, uh, George Floyd's murder to mm-hmm. uh, sort of street protests to the kind of a the synthesis of a kind of political movement, or at least the sense of, of a something beginning. And it, and it culminates in, you know, the people who are responsible for maintaining the, the, the precise apparatus, which grinds people like George Floyd into, uh, underneath its heels. Um, those people who maintain it, adopting the slogans, um, reifying and re-entrenching their power and control over it, even with like slogans like defund the police. And the end result is they spray paint Black Lives Matter on the, on the sidewalk and they increase funding for the police. And there are still there are some people who are like, yeah, look, we've made the world a better place. Why? Oh, because we've raised awareness. It's like, well, if you feel like you've made the world a better place, and a lot of people agree with you, and what you've actually done is not not only not made it work better, but maybe made it worse by giving a kind of a new gloss over this horrendous thing that for just a minute, everybody's really mad about. Haven't you kind of performed precisely the role that it would want you to, it being the system, if I'm trying to personify it here, that Mm -hmm. they would want you to. You've actually helped make their job easier by, uh, you know, by doing this exact same thing that, you know, you know, maybe maybe the Matrix films have given us uh, a really clear language to talk about all of this, and maybe that's easier than telling people actually Baudrillard's Simulacra and Simulacrum is uh, already about this, or better, Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle is all about this already. But those are the you know Matrix films. Lots of people are going to watch them. I guess I just question the utility of even knowing. Like, what what can you even do with knowing? You know, maybe that's my only point today. <laughs> 
Well, not only that, you're right. Like, obviously, if you watch the Matrix films, and that's going to be more digestible than watching DeBoard's Society of the Spectacle. But, but even in that act, you will reach more people. And, and the, uh, the outer shell of an idea will be more easily recognized. But the meat of it, by virtue of the kung fu style, the you know, uh, cinema, the the overuse of special effects, the uh, the big movie stars, the the cool soundtrack, by virtue of all those components, for as much as it makes it easier and more digestible and and uh, way, raises awareness, it also dilutes the message by mm-hmm. its presentation. So. You have famously Elon Musk and uh, who's Trump, Ivana Trump saying, take the red pill. And you've got um, Lily Wachowski saying, fuck you both. But th- that's that's really beyond that. And, and maybe a handful of us who are like, yes, we do need to wake up and we'll do our own podcast and we'll study leftist politics. Beyond that, in the end, what has fundamentally changed? Yeah, yeah. Um- even so the the real the black pill which is the one i i think we should choose um is that is that it doesn't you know whether you're super well educated and hyper aware or you only have the watered down you know dumb guy version of it to just to put it in the least generous terms possible right either way what can you really do um because i do think that i i think that that's the Another critical aspect of the of the story of the, mm-hmm. the Matrix films, which I also think is a critical aspect of the way that we live our lives right now, which is why it's so prescient, is that uh, there is a kind of a hero. Somebody's going to come along and fix it. But well, nobody's coming. There isn't anybody else. We're the only ones there are. There isn't somebody who's going to come from outside and have some kind of, you know, there's no one. There's no chosen person whose role it is to come in and it, you know, shake everybody awake, pull them out of the, whatever the, the goo with the, where the wires are stuck in the back of you. I don't really know what those things do exactly, but they, they, up, they, they upload the, the fictional reality into your brain, right? Mm-hmm. No one's going to come and unplug yeah. all this shit for you because that's, that's not how the world works. The world works like it does in the matrix. Only it's worse because the only people that can do anything about it are us. And we don't have any ideas. Right. And I think I think that there is, in spite of herself, Lana can't help but be optimistic. And while I appreciated this sort of um, analogy of the the divine feminine and the divine masculine uniting and through that unity that, you know, there's there is power there. I think that not only is, is it is it a personal message that she's sharing that that unification, but there's also this idea that. To your point, there is no one. Any individual person is not particularly special, but it's only when we unite that we're special. I do think that that is an underlying message of this new movie. But at the same time, I think that it doesn't really present a a methodology by which to do this. Only, only says it. And, then, and if it's only saying that, then... Is it any more impactful than saying defund the police and on Twitter and then going to make a sandwich? Right. At least when the thing that you're railing against is that, um, you know, the Henry Ford 
or whoever inherits the the company like the Ford company locked you and all the rest of the assembly line out and told you that you're laid off because you know the stock market crashed or whatever at least you know i'm mad at that guy i want to get back in there and so we're going to occupy the factory like there was a straightforward bad guy straightforward good guy there's an us and them there's a clear thing that you do um but we're not in the great depression we don't have it isn't like the labor trade union versus the boss right instead like this conversation we're talking about right now is like even the people who are coming to present like the alternative takes or whatever are kind of just like feeding the takes machine which is uh like <laughs> if only it was so straightforward um yeah I, mean, I think we're serving a role we're the hot topic in a way right yeah. we're the we're the commercialization of rebellion in our in our fit of rebellion we we are we are a necessary component so that enough people feel like they are listening to freedom radio they're listening to free thinking radio they're like on the outside looking in and 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 again best intentions i mean sure. i don't think either of us are trying to intentionally delude people into being a cog in the in the spectacle but by virtue of what we're doing and and the avenues by which we can do it i think it's inevitable that that's the role that we're slotted into and at the end you know like you've got you've got neo and trinity and they've got this sort of you know, diatribe about uniting and 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 it's very filled with optimism and i was like yeah optimism but what i've been thinking about over the last few days is not their end speech but it's the analysts end speech which is to say that they can do whatever they want. They can go paint the skies rainbows. It doesn't matter because in the end, people are going to choose this reality because it's near perfected in its role as controlling people. Uh, yeah. In its role of, of using people as means of, of consumption and production and nothing more. And um, every every it's like uh, you know again to equate it to the real world it's like Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, that's actually Great. a really good example. Great for a little while we all but but let's think about what's happened since Occupy Wall Street. Everyone's got a rose in their Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 blue wave uh, emoji is in full usage. We got rid of the orange despot. Oh, that's right. It, yeah, we got we got rid of Orange Hitler or whatever they call him. Yeah, yeah. But in the end, nothing has fundamentally changed. As our well, as Air as Air Biden once famously said, nothing will fundamentally change. And I I mean I looked at the leftist movement and I'm just like we fuck we're, we're it died it's done yeah, it's, it's in the way that we've conceived it today. Oh yeah, look. I mean, I think so. I don't um, I don't know how much crossover there is in terms of audiences so i'm not going to presume anybody listening knows much about me um but i'm starting to become more comfortable using language that goes something like yeah i'm a socialist but i i'm not like i'm not a leftist which Mm -hmm. is only it's kind of tongue-in-cheek because i i feel like i have to some figure out some way of like distancing myself and the kinds of things that i want to advocate for from the like culture war which is it's not to say that I think uh, concerns that people have in the culture wars are mistaken concerns, you know, like the rights of minorities are very important, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, 
In fact, I think that they couldn't overstate how important it is to like make it really easy to just be who you are and have that not be an issue and have it not be seen as transgressive and have, you know, acceptance is something we all want. But I want to I want to embody and personify an argument about the world that says, I actually don't care what you believe. What matters is what's possible for you to do, right? This is that old Stokely Carmichael quote. It says, if a white man wants to lynch me, that's his problem. If a white man can lynch me, then it's my problem. Right. So like, I want, a, I want a world in which we all actually have the capacity to participate in it, where we have uh, like structures and mechanisms that are built to protect people as opposed to, you know, like hordes of gold that, that, the, that the parasites that run the world sit on right now. And then you can go home and believe whatever you want. And I don't, you know, I don't want to hear about it, but I'm not going to go and try to ruin your life by like you know, posting your address on Reddit and saying like, this guy said something, you know, homophobic when he was 17 or whatever. Like I have to figure out a way to distance myself from all of that to try to get back to the basic argument that like you don't run your own life somebody in a suit in a boardroom pays somebody else to run your life for you. And that's the fundamental problem. And all right. of your other anxieties about foreigners and about, you know, trans people going to the bathroom or whatever, those concerns you have, I think they're, they're wrong. I don't share them, but you have those concerns, those anxieties because they're misplaced because what you're really mm -hmm. mad about is that you don't actually own your home. The bank owns your home. You don't actually have any security. You're taking care of your children, even though they're old enough to be, they're supposed to be taking care of you soon, but the world that you were raised in no longer exists. And so we have to make a new one and a better one. And it doesn't mean like, if I go and say those things, everyone's going to get it. I just mean that like, I'm not here to crusade against how you feel in your heart. I don't know how you feel in your heart. I don't care how you feel in your heart. I just want to know if you're on my side or not when it comes to the big question. Right. So today's left doesn't, seem to embody those principles those kind of like classical what we now i mean what we used to call libertarian principles of like you go and believe whatever you want to believe um but there is no outlet or mechanism rather for actualizing any of that so yeah best case scenario i might carve out a little subculture of people who are old school socialists instead of new school you know twitter leftists or whatever and it doesn't fucking help anybody so you know, <laughs> well, that's that's uh, that's sort of the place that I've come to more recently, which is this. I, I mean, you you know me. How many how many times have we had discussions about the counterculture movement? And uh, I've said this in the last podcast. Like, the, I think that our generation, which is like overlapping the 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 younger Gen Xers or the elder millennials, we're kind of in that that intersection between the two. And I think it's. One of, a, one of the defining factors of that is this romanticism that we each have. So if you're a super hardcore anti-government person, you've probably romanticized this idea of what it will look like when the new world order comes to like take our guns or, or enslave us or whatever, right? You've got this twisted but romanticized idea of like people coming down the street with boots and guns and helmets and tanks and all this idea, right? And, and conversely... If you're like me, you've got this romantic idea of like the world will be saved by poetry. The world will be saved if we just like, you know, did fuck smoke some weed, man, and just like <laughs> chilled out, you know? Well, and, at least that feels right individually. Reading poetry and smoking weed does kind of help you. At least yes. that's tangible in some way. None of us Which have actually experienced, you know, the new world order coming in. Well, I guess, you know, some people are, I mean, paying taxes, I guess that sucks. <laughs> 
I mean, the social media and the internet and the Twittering machine and all those things are examples and they're far more effective than, than people coming, you know, than soldiers coming down the streets with martial law and tanks. Like it's so much more efficient to shape the consciousness of society through these devices and these apparatuses that have been provided to us that we willfully absorbed into our lives. And if we didn't willfully absorb them, they made it to where it's almost impossible to exist without them. I think on the last one of the podcasts I listened to that you did, you talked you shared an antidote about um, whether or not to continue a paper press of a newspaper that you were a part of. Yeah. And with, and whether or not, whether or not you should continue or you move it all to an online website. And I think the point that you made, or at least one of the questions that you highlight as being the most important part is that all one has to do is disconnect the internet and then everything that you've done is gone in a heartbeat. You, you don't even, in the same way that the bank controls or owns your home and your property and everything else, so does our digital despots own every creative outlet that we do mostly now because it's all online. That's true. You try to imagine a situation in which there's some sort of 2011 moment, not the American version, but the Egyptian one, right? Where mm-hmm. you actually, there is a real threat to the social order. Um, forget how that ended up, didn't didn't end up going so well. But for a moment, it looked like, oh, look, this is the the revolution in that classic sense that like the left used to kind of talk about. It's the mm-hmm. people and their masses. It's uh, people overcoming differences, religious differences, differences in attitudes about sex and gender, and all of the things which we consume ourselves with when we have no power as we kind of focus our fire on each other. They put all of that aside, and there's strikes protests, occupations, people fight the cops, the, the government collapses. And it's like, wow, that, that, that can still happen in the world, right? But that's all in the physical world. That's all happening outside of, like, you know, we, we, we developed this mythology that the, the, for a while people called it the Twitter revolution. And there's this terrible delusion that this all happens because of mass communications or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, the danger in, in that kind of thinking is that you like rely on, you know, tools that are given to you by your oppressors, right? Or at least your uh, opponents. Right. And uh, they design them. They work better for them than they do for you. And, you know, the because I'm going to try to figure out a way to connect it back to the to the matrix discussion a little, right? It's like that's you know, what, what it means for them to actually be able to act upon their world in any way is they have to like unplug or whatever, right? You have to like, it's all whatever they call it, meat space. It all happens in the real world, everything that actually happens. And if you don't control anything, you don't own anything, you don't have any material uh, in your hands, I think you're at a decisive disadvantage. And like, like, look, for example, if it became illegal for, I mean, obviously there's nothing threatening about this, but if it became illegal for us to do, you know, whatever political podcasts, man, if somehow they just turn it off. It's like, well, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Zen, Zen caster was, is a, they closed it down, you know, webcams, you can't use your webcam anymore. That's the end. What yeah, could we do? Exactly. We, we have, we have nothing, you know? Well, and here's here's the connection to the Matrix films, right? And, and where it kind of got a little fucked up in one of the sequels. I, I forget which was the second or the third one. But 
the 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 army the 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 unplugged right in the real world they're just like people in this rinky dink ship like eating this gruel and 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 like bar- surviving barely surviving they're like they're like rats in a in a sewer uh they have very little power almost none in fact mm-hmm. their their doom the moment they're they're found is is almost a certainty the only way neo has power again until they recon it it's because he plugs back into the Matrix. Oh, in yeah, the Matrix, true. he can fly and he's got all his superpowers. He can dodge bullets. But in the real world, he's just a bloke. He's just some dude. <laughs> just a bloke. That's just me. Just a bloke. Well, yeah. and there's something really dangerous in that too, I think. Like if we, let's, if we take that message literally. Uh, and I do actually think that this latest film kind of, kind of makes the same case. I mean, kind mm-hmm. of. It very much makes this case that uh, once you've been equipped with the knowledge then you can use their system against them, you know? And I, yeah. I, I think everyone sort of thinks that they can. I think that like a Twitter tirade or a pylon or like a, you know, the intense, furious back and forth exchanges that people have on like Facebook uh, are to me emblematic of the same kind of thinking. Like, well, I figured it out now. I've got to go use these tools that the, that the bad guys have given us. Only now that it, I know what it's for, I'm going to use it you know, against itself. And it doesn't really work. No, not long-term and not in a global sense. I think that at best, what we can do is, is affect a smaller, like you said earlier, you you might be able to carve out for yourself, this small insulated community of like-minded folks that, that share a common belief and maybe they live life slightly different than the norm like so maybe we don't go to the oops, oops club maybe we have a a book club instead you know maybe we don't um uh uh pray at the church of mammon and we we do some sort of esoteric spiritual belief but but uh, and, and i'm not undermining that at all but beyond that beyond what maybe what a dozen a hundred a thousand maybe beyond that the mechanisms available to us to affect people beyond that inevitably plug us back in. And then once we're back in and we're attempting to use these tools against the system, it's you're only going as far as you're allowed. Yeah. Because again, if this podcast or your podcast or punk rock music, if any of this was truly a danger, they would just unplug us and that would be the end of it. And they don't have, they don't have to put a bullet. They don't have to seize your family and take you to the gulags. Oh, look, you got, you got, you got zucked, right? You got banned. You got, you got removed from the platform. You got, what is it? Deplatformed. You got canceled. You get canceled. And and that's it. And then you're done. And all the work that you've done within this electronic sphere is for naught. Which then, which then begs the question, is there really at this stage in our life, in, in the life of this society, do we have anything beyond the small sort of incremental way by which we survive to adjust? Like, is it possible for us to truly make the world a better place? Or at best, can we maybe just try to live a life a little less shitty, a little less painful, maybe maybe surrounded with, with a little bit of beauty? Uh, you know, take the best of what life has to offer still and 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 rely on that until we meet 
meet our end and and hope for the best? I mean, my short answer is probably that's where that's where <laughs> we're um, like, I think so this this theme of uh, this is not the real world. I wrote, I wrote two quotes from the movie. So we've been talking about one, which is billions, billions of people just living out their lives oblivious. That's kind of the discussion we've been having all this time. Right. Um, I'm only somewhat sympathetic to that. I actually don't think people are oblivious. I think people are they don't know what to do. Um, but the other one, this is not the real world. That sense, um, I think it's not just because everything feels bad in some way, which we can't quite figure out. I think it's because mm-hmm. I think from basically the turn of the t- really, let's say, let's say from the end of the Civil War up until about the end of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. So something like 200 years, you see this massive explosion of uh, freedom struggles around the world. And uh, many of them are very, very successful from like the formal abolition of slavery. Like, you know, there's the informal slavery that's still, that's still there. Right. But right. the abolition of slavery and the emancipation of, you know, uh, huge, a, a whole, a whole part of the population that exists almost exclusively enslaved from there through the creation of, and I'm using an American lens for a moment, right. But to the creation of the, of the labor movement, the end of like child labor, the you know the women's suffrage the end of segregation um the you know there's the eight-hour day struggle and then around the world there's anti-colonial movements there's revolutions that topple monarchs and the established democracies and there's you know little glimpses of what a society without uh without the rule of capital you know like little 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 glimpses of what that might and it all didn't work out Mm -hmm. so we went through 200 years of reaching as farther than we could see striking out way past the the known horizon like lightning um and we didn't really hit very much in the long run right like so Mm -hmm. angola is free of colonial domination wonderful but now angola is basically ruled by oil companies so it's like Mm -hmm. now you have the local angolan population runs their own affairs but at the behest of multinationals so it's I guess it's better, but on the, on the other hand, like it's, it's the same fucking people still run the world and you can yeah. take that and, and magnify it to the world scale. And it's true everywhere. They ended apartheid right in South Africa. And now, um, now black cops can shoot black people. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, and so the reason why it feels like this isn't the real world is because you can't have gone through 200 years of marching forward only to have arrived here. It's just, yeah. Because I feel like it's not just that it sucks that it didn't work out. It's that we must have made some huge mistakes. And I think we were supposed to have arrived somewhere. And instead, we marched in the other direction. And now it feels like it's too late. And it might actually be. Not for all of humanity, but for us, for now. Maybe, you know, like there was a Mayan civilization. It was huge. And it decayed. And it's gone. And there are descendants. But it's not the same thing. And maybe that's us. Maybe we're not yeah. living through the revolution. Maybe we're just living through decay. Yeah, I think that we're post-revolution in, in a lot of ways. I think the revolution came and went. I think that it may have peaked, or maybe not peaked. I think that I think it, it the death rattle was coming out of the the counterculture of the '60s. Uh, I think that was yeah. the very very end of it. And I think um, you you have a podcast on. I think it's on. Is it the Regrettable Century? Yes, I think it's the Regrettable Century, where you're highlighting the sort of socialist movement in America. Part one is a, well, part two may be available by the time this comes out. So listen to both. But um, I think it probably will be. Yeah. 
Yeah, but you make the point that people think, like I have thought traditionally that the 60s, the counterculture of the, the long 60s was kind of the height of the of the counterculture movement, but, but perhaps that's not actually true. Perhaps that was the beginning of the end. And um, I don't know if so much we made a, a, a wrong turn or, or a drastic mistake so much as that the, 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 let's call it life's algorithm, adjusted in such a way that it, it rendered us powerless. Uh, the movement from working class to intellectuals, mm-hmm. I think, was a fundamental flaw. I think that uh, from that moment onward, when leftist politics or, or, or counterculture politics became something from the factory to the universities, I think that was a yeah. mistake. I think that, um, and, and again, I'll draw the parallels to the movies. The first Matrix comes out and it is such a quintessential Gen X movie, right? It really it's, is. It's, it's right at the dawn of the internet. It, it espouses people's fear of this new technology, but it offers a glimmer of hope that within the system, we can wake up and change our lives, right? That the, it, it, it inevitably promises the, the illusion of freedom that the internet was supposed to provide, right? Millions and billions of people interconnected, ideas freely for, you know, yeah. uh, flowing. But just like Neo in his optimistic I forget how the actor was, but let's say 20s or, or early 30s when that movie came out to now when he's like nearly 60. And he's not only is he right back in the Matrix, but he's the creator of it. And I found that where there was intentional otherwise to be a criticism of the Gen X generation, mm-hmm. wherein much like the boomers who might have, you know, in the in the counterculture in the long 60s with this beacon of hope and change only to become the very controllers uh, that, that, that spawn neoliberalism and Reaganomics and all that, the Gen Xers of the, the end of the 20th century, early 21st century, filled with hope of using this new technology to like remove the gatekeepers, man, free-flowing, like uh, decentralizing things. They're now the Elon Musk and the Jeff Brazos of the world. <laughs> Like it's that generation yeah. that is, is is are the are the technocrats, who who much like the architect or sorry the analysts much like the analysts in the movie, have have redone the matrix and perfected it so much so that we just might be past the point of no return on this. Sure, like, man. Whereas. Whereas like Fight Club and the Matrix and those movies were like. Anti-consumerism, anti man, reject Ikea. Like, you're not your khakis. If it was only that simple now, right? If it was only as simple as like, hey, go buy from a thrift store. Go buy from Goodwill. Go buy, you know, whatever. Go go support your local coffee shop instead of Starbucks. If I, I would love to be transported back when those were the struggles Absolutely. that we were fighting against. <laughs> Yeah, I think what, what what I really fear for is because I how much I agree with you. <laughs> I, I start to think about like, and you can see glimpses of it already, but the world that the millennials will run. Um, because I will admit that there was once a time in my life, not too long ago, where I felt kind of good about the millennial generation. You know, I thought, hey, Bernie Sanders, all the young people like him. My, my people, you know, I'm, as an elder statesman of the millennial generation, I feel like I represent a constituency that is uh, really forward thinking 
And now what I see is the Citibank and Chase and the goddamn CIA talking in exactly the same way that so many so-called nominally radical people I know uh, are talking about the world. And uh, I just can't help but think about how much worse it's going to be when those CIA recruitment ads aren't targeted at millennials, but are run or made by millennials targeting yeah. the Zoomers. Who knows what kind of insane shit they're going to be saying. And again, I, I feel like I don't want to, I don't want to be accidentally, uh, I don't want to be misinterpreted here. The fact that the CIA uh, talks about like gender uh, and inclusivity and stuff doesn't mean that those things aren't important. But it means that there is no inherent threat in your identity. It's yours. It's important. But like, we're going to have to figure out some other way of taking down the system than just, you know, having a really interesting sex life because they can sell that to you too, which is why it is important to you in the first place. Um, There might be things about me that are, would really freak some people out, man. And there are probably a lot of squares would really disagree with it, but I don't care if they know or not. Because I don't think I'm going to bring down the system that way. No, um, because because at worst, at best case, you might just seem a bit odd. But yeah, you're until not I get arrested. Like, yeah, it's just until until I represent a marketing demographic, and I will even go as far as to say it's really great that increasingly, like being queer, just just to take one example, mm-hmm. is uh, normalized enough to where the likelihood of getting uh, brutalized by strangers because you're queer uh, has diminished considerably even over just the last 20 years. I think that's great. Um, There's another, you know, it's it's an open question. I don't even know how much of a debate there is about, you know, if you're a person of color, if you're any safer than you were 20 years ago, probably not, honestly. But this point's getting away from me. What I'm trying to say is that uh, the language about inclusivity and tolerance and respect and diversity is now also the language of the whole society, including the bad guys. Right. Yeah. Because we don't want to throw the. That's what the spectacle okay. is. It figures out your concerns and it figures out a way to give it back to you in its language. And it feels like progress, but, it, you know, you still can't buy anything. You still can't save anything. And you're still under threat, you know, all the time by the same people you were 20 years ago when they thought that you were, uh, you know, threatening the moral fabric of America or whatever. Now they're like, Hey, that's great. We love that. We love you. Really great. Like you still have to go fucking kill people in Afghanistan now, but you know, as a, yeah. as a gay man now, right. yeah, run, by, run by a, a person of color as president or a woman as president, right. dropping bombs over the same Brown people overseas. Uh, but, the, but the airplane pilot is also, um, you know, part of the LGBTQ community yeah. and, you know, like, and again, I don't, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because to your point, it's not like many of these things. It's not like there has not been progress in people's individual lives. You know, I love the fact that trans people feel more comfortable being open about their identity. And 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 I, I celebrate the reduction of harm that can be done to them. And I, totally. I celebrate the reduction of bias and, and uh, you know, vitriol that can be levied at them or is levied at them based on the cultural change. These are all things to be celebrated. I love the fact that although I do not feel any safer now as a Mexican American in Los Angeles, certainly because I just shot a 14 year old girl uh, with the police, I do at least appreciate the fact that I'm not segregated into one area of town. That all being said, it's a, it's a, it's 
it's a it's a paltry but still tangible you know it's, it's like an inch forward i guess yes like so so it's it, it is something worth celebrating and, it, and and i don't want this to be completely a swan song of pessimism however what like i'll, I'll use the example like i i don't live in a barrio i'm not forced to live in a barrio i am allowed to go to starbucks i am allowed to shop at westfield malls i am allowed to uh be on the internet uh, those things I'm allowed to do, and that might feel like progress, and, and certainly, and maybe in some ways, it is. But at, but how much of my my culture have I lost? Right. As a part of that assimilation, how much of my identity have I lost? How much of uh, ancient traditions that my people may have had since they were the Mayans or the Quanquans, in my case, or whatever, have been lost in that freedom? So, again, without without being completely doom and gloom, I think that for every every step forward of progress that we feel like we've made, it 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 has been allowed. And it has been allowed because that incremental freedom then pacifies us. There's a there's a famous George Carden gag where he's talking about there's no freedom of choice. Your freedom of choice is plastic or paper, Coke or Pepsi, you know, supersized or or tall you can't even call fucking coffee what it is anymore it's like, <laughs> you know and so i say anymore it's been a 30 year old gag that everyone has been saying but it, it still holds that we we have been allowed certain freedoms so that we may sit down comfortable in our cage and relax and let the gears keep on turning and i think that 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 kind of message or at least the conflict of that message is in this movie. Whether or not I, I think Lana probably I don't want to speak for her, but I think she certainly still holds a, a beacon of hope in her message. But as I watch the movie, as someone a bit younger than her, as someone on the fringe of that millennial Gen X cusp, I kind of walked away from it feeling m- more pessimistic than ever about w- what m- our generation can actually affect change. I think that we might be at a point in in our lives uh, i'll reference saint carlin again where at the best case we've bought a ticket to the circus and we're enjoying the show you know we're enjoying what we have left for as long as we're allowed to have it and we can do stuff to sort of morphinize our existence but i don't know what is capable under these parameters, unless there's a radical change, you know, like an EMP or a solar flare that knocks out all the internet or something catastrophic to actively force restructuring. Yeah. I mean, I think I will go as far as to say that I can't know, obviously. And like, you know, I think a simple narrative about the arc of history uh, being long and bending toward justice, I think is maybe, uh, you know, that's what Martin Luther King said, and it sounds nice, but I, I don't know if it's really true, but it definitely bends towards development. It definitely mm-hmm. changes. Um, I definitely don't think we've been on a march solidly downward or solidly forward. I think contradiction drives uh, development. I think that like the American Revolution was good and the entrenching the power of the slaveholders was bad. And the tension between those things led to the development of new things, which gives us the civil war, which, you know, mm-hmm. ending slavery there was good, but it also means opening up the frontiers, which means genocidal warfare against the indigenous, which is obviously bad. Um, and so for every step that we might call a step forward, 
there is also one that looks like a step backward, but we're obviously not in the same place. So to be right. Hegel, you know, to go to go back to my Hegel, <laughs> what we see is the the resolution of contradictions and the creation of new contradictions, but always like on a higher order. But the idea for Hegel is that at some point this culminates in uh, the consummation of the idea of freedom, in which everybody is fully aware of and fully empowered to act upon their own world in concert with each other and remake the world in their own image in the same way that God made them to use his language, right? That man and God can become co-constitutive of each other and resolve the riddle of history. Um, That sounds beautiful. Maybe that's even true, whatever. But what we actually, I think what we see really for the last at least several decades, 50, 60, 70 years, maybe even a hundred years, looks to me like an over-ripening. I think like, a, you know, to, to out myself as, as, a, as a former Trotskyist, <laughs> the Russian Revolution is the, is the point of reference that it has been the favorite for a very long time because it looked like the beginning of the next chapter in history. And without going into a boring, you know, monologue about all the things that happened, very clearly that we have not entered into that chapter of history. We're very... The, we still, I mean, we live in a world that was birthed by that moment, but we don't live in the, a world that was the aspirations of those people um, didn't come to fruition. We don't live in a world without the exploitation of man by man, the alienation of human beings from each other and from nature and from everything else. We live in this, we live in a world that they had presumed wouldn't have come into existence. So the question is for me, and I, this is not a rhetorical question. I don't know the answer. Is there such a thing in human history, if, if society is organic, right? Is there such a thing in which, uh, like an apple, if it stays on the vine too long and it goes from ripe to overripe to rot, is there a certain point at which it's no longer worth picking? Right. Is it, and, and if that's the case, is that the time that we live in? And isn't that a real deeply tragic thing to consider, that we had the chances, many of them, for 100 years, and we just fucking missed them? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that um, you know, it's hard to say because also when you think about where we're at and how far along we're at, I've joked often that I'm like one bad day away from going off to the woods and like starting a coal and like just living off the land, right? But but on another one of your podcasts, you started talking about the witch and yeah. this interpretation of the witch, and um, and what it made me think of, and I forget the. I think it's Thomas, but I can't remember the the, the father figure's name. Um, it 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 makes me think this fantasy, this again, this romantic idea of going off and building a cabin, this kind of cottage core fetish that I may have, the the step off the hamster wheel fetish that I have. What would actually happen if I decided tomorrow I'm going to pack up all my shit, I'm going to go drive to the middle of the woods. And I'm going to live off the land. I probably would starve to death, much like the characters in The Witch. I don't have the skills to live off the land. You know what I'm saying? I mean, maybe I could develop some. What am I going to do? Google how to build a house? Then I'll be right plugged back in, right? I'm going to go hunt tofu in the woods. Like, what would I actually (laughs) do? What would I actually do to survive outside of the systems which I was raised in? Which then begs the question... What happens if, if in the world of the Matrix, everyone was unplugged simultaneously? What world would they be inhabiting? They'd be inhabiting a world with no sunlight. So they would probably, 
and, and scarcity, right? So they would probably all die miserable and starving and painfully. Well, you know, I'm oh, sorry. What was that? Oh, well, you know what, um, what happened to Ted Kaczynski is he did learn all the skills he needed to survive in the woods. And he mm-hmm. did successfully go off the grid and live in harmony with nature. And he was, it was just him and the wilderness and the spiritual regeneration that comes from being a part of it, living symbiotically with the rhythms of the natural world, man in his natural state, you know, the great romantic ideal of the, the, the kind of revulsion of the, uh, against the industrial revolution. And then water pond. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then some developers came and cut down the fucking forest. <laughs> That's the best case scenario. You might actually pull it off and the world outside will still encroach in upon you. You know, the, uh, Richard Nixon was very famous for this terrible dog whistle. He would always talk about the jungle is always creeping in. And he meant, you know, urban culture, young black people. But he was saying, like, you know, the jungle is at just at the edges of society and it's always creeping in. But it's actually the other way around. Mm-hmm. Freedom, uh, the end of anxiety, the end of, you know, all of the horrible hangups that it, from, that come from living in this in you know in civilization is just right there that you you know you can grasp it but civilization is con- going to continue to march in it's still going to tear up every last bit of untapped untouched pristine wilderness until there's nothing left until we actually just live in the world that the uh, I was going to try to come up with a visual example but just sticking with the matrix theme since that's the the, the evening um, when they all unplug and you look around at the place that they're in, nope, that's not going to work. <laughs> I've lost, I've lost, the, I've lost the plot here. Whatever. I'm just talking well, about the end, the end of the natural world until all that's left is like, a, let's say a Mad Max world. Yeah. So well, and and yeah. and 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 again, even if in the best case scenarios we were able to digest, uh, sorry, not digest, we were able to disconnect ourselves from society and we were able to figure out a way to thrive in a more natural setting in community with nature, even if we can accomplish that, even if we move somewhere so remote to keep, or at least to, to hold off the encroachment long enough for us to die. It doesn't make the world a better place. Right. Because, because if I move to Montana and I live off the land for the rest of my days, there will still be people in Indonesia and China and Taiwan and the Middle East and India and name name a country that is run by corporations. There's still going to be social media that manipulates people's brains and makes them the product to be consumed by advertisers. These mm-hmm. things still exist. At best case scenario, I might find some peace of mind, which is why I liken it to being imagine – Imagine a world in which you were, you were, the doctor called you, and I'm not trying to make light of people with terminal illness, but the doctor calls you and they say, the end is nigh, you've got X amount of time to live, which is real. We, we will all die, right? This, the, we have been given a death sentence at birth. Here's some, here's morphine to make you feel as comfortable as possible. Here's, here's how we can make these last few years of your life as pain free as possible. You're never going to get, back what you're losing but we can reduce the suffering and i kind of feel like we might just live in an era we might have been born in an era where that is frankly the best that it will be for us 
Yeah, we might live maybe... in late Imperial Rome. Yeah, you know, the, might... the Renaissance might come, but in 500 years. Yeah, exactly. 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 And just to cycle again, right? Yeah. To find um, new issues. I don't, I, I, I do think that it is worth figuring out, you know, I mean, presuming you're going to continue to be alive and we're currently here. So you do have to figure out some way of navigating the world that, that, that doesn't feel like giving up and giving in. Right. And I yeah. do think that there's some obligation we have to each other as an inherently social species. There is some obligation that we have to try to make it easier for, for the next person um, as you go. But you run up against like, you know, the whole this whole conversation has been about you run up against your own limits pretty much immediately. And so it begs the question, is it worth moving our mindset outside of a macro level, outside of a global level? And and does it make sense to start building from the from micro level out? You know, we all recognize that Reaganomics and this idea of trickle down economy and the way most things are run now is this idea that we will support massive corporations and that will benefit the lives of the individual. We know that to be false. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we are attacking the world from that same mindset because it was the only mindset we were raised in. It's the, it, it is the tools that we know. And perhaps similarly, it also isn't really working in the same way that we need it to work. Perhaps the answer is to build from the inside and go outward. I don't know this, but I do know that that's how, how civilizations end from corruption from within, right? A slow rotting from within outward. Perhaps that is the path towards making the world a better place. I mean, I will, I will say that I, I would imagine, let's say it would flow logically, that the seeds of regeneration are going to be found in the destruction, right? So if, there's, if we're living through the decay, and I think some people listening to this might say, this is a very American-centric, you know, Western-centric discussion. Sure. Um, I, I want to be really clear that I actually am including the whole world <laughs> in this, uh, when you, I, you know, you go to Greece, you go to Brazil, you go to, you know, any number of places, go to the, go to Western Europe, you know, uh, nobody's doing really, really great. Nobody's living through the flowering moment of their, of their culture, of their civilization. Mm -hmm. Some people say that about China. There is a, there is a political, uh, increasingly popular and it seems pretty obvious why, but there's an increasingly popular view among a certain kind of like mostly online leftist that sees the American empire in decline and all of its satellites, you know, Colombia, South Korea, all of the countries that have been like uh, from the Cold War on, like in the mm -hmm. orbit of the American imperial center, that that's in decline. And the rising power and the basically the, the next phase in humanity is, is that the influence of the Chinese, uh, the Chinese state and Chinese culture and politics are going to be what bring humanity into its next stages, whatever. I don't really see it. And it's not just because like, I don't understand China or whatever, but because this is just, this, you know, value producing heavy industry export economy. It's, it's not, it just looks like different. Yeah. It doesn't look like a, a real shift in the nature of civilization itself. It just looks like a, yeah, their economy is not currently contracting, but in terms of like the decline of the species, in a spiritual sense, right? In a, in the sense of like where we are as a, in, a, in our ability to like 
relate to each other as an increasingly complex rather than increasingly atomized, individuated uh, subject. I don't really see a distinction anywhere in the world. I see the whole species kind of uh, being ripped apart from each other. And, you know, all of, all of the things we're talking about, like maybe are more on display to us because we're Americans. And so we're talking about the United States, but it is a global process, I think. Yeah. I mean, look, if you, if you, Check back to the world of cyberpunk and you look at the way it's oftentimes, especially movies that came out at the end of the 20th century, they they would have thought that the rising – I mean I think the idea that the American industrial and imperial complex eroding has been around for a long time. But the idea in the 20th century was it would be Japan that yeah. would be the rising power. And so if you look at all the aesthetics in Blade Runner and, and The Matrix and all those films in between, it's heavily – uh, influenced by Japanese, uh, in, in particular Tokyo's uh, visual aesthetic of neon lights and advertisement. But when you look at those films and you look at sort of that idea, and then you look at, say, Las Vegas, <laughs> yeah. are they drastically different aesthetics? I don't see it. No, you go to Times Square and it looks like Akira. Exactly, exactly. And so I, I think that you're right. I think that this eon of history is is being propelled by capitalism and consumerism and um, imperialism. And I think that, I mean, uh, you know, there's a, the, at the end of Seven where, where he quotes, um, I think it's Hemingway, the world is a good place and worth fighting for. I agree with half of that or something to that effect. Uh, your friend Morgan Freeman says this. Yeah, that's right. I I, I oscillate as to whether or not I believe that many, many times, but I, I certainly think that while I can bemoan and be pessimistic about our chances to change the world in a global sense, I, I also can't deny the incremental changes that we've made that allows you and I to be out in public without being lynched, mm-hmm. that allows uh, you know the LGBTQ community to be... Uh, open with their love and their partners. And I can't ignore that stuff, even in my most moody yelling at clouds mode. And I think that perhaps that is kind of what I must settle for. And I must continue that battle and, and look, I'll, you know, we'll do what we can to save the world on a global sense, I guess, you know, if it makes us feel good, but, but it, it may just be that we're in that terminal phase where we just need to comfort each other the best we can until, an asteroid comes or whatever, whatever, yeah. whatever global disaster disrupts the entire system. Because to your point, it's not just America. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the things that the early Marx was writing about in the 1840s was about the, the global nature of bourgeois society. And that mm-hmm. like, you know, capital hasn't cemented its rule over every corner of the globe yet, but it's very obviously in the process of doing so. So that's in the 1840s. I would say by the First World War, it's pretty global, but it's not super sophisticated yet. By the by, the end of the Cold War, there's nowhere left mm-hmm. for, to, to invest in new markets. There's no more... There's no more part of the world that's like untouched and is like, you know, there's no autarky. There's no, there's no country's economy, which is inter- entirely internal and closed off. Now, there is this delusion, this fever dream of a certain kind of person on the right, which says, uh, like, you know, to 
the some of the implications of the, the COVID narrative close the borders. Mm-hmm. Um, you can keep out the bad. But the reality is, is that if you were going to, I think if you were going to create that kind of like closed system where you got to determine and dictate what you wanted to do, whether you had nefarious aims like, you know, people who want to build a wall so that you keep the Mexicans out, or if you had, let's say, more altruistic aims like you wanted to, uh, um, well, like Cuba, for example, is trying to run itself differently than the Yankees want them to do so. So that's, it's, it's in a different way. It's like a kind of a, a desire to close off the, the border, so to speak, of at least of a certain kind of influence. But I think if you were actually going to do that, if you're actually going to accomplish it, you would actually have to change the nature of the world itself. You would not, mm-hmm. not in the sense of like, a, not in a cosmological sense, not like changing the, the, the order of the universe. I mean, changing what it is we've built. I don't think you can just unplug, right? You can't go be Ted Kaczynski out in the woods because the woods are going, going to get chopped down. You can't unplug your city or your country even. You, you're going to have to change the world. And that's the reason for this kind of despair that we're talking about because the tools, <laughs> the tools that we have to change the world, uh, they don't work. Um, no. So... But, yeah, maybe all but, we can do right now is leave a legacy for somebody yeah. else to be inspired by later. So some spiritually regenerative legacy that we can lead, uh, leave behind that says you can, in fact, you know, gain a kind of symbiotic, non-alienated way of relating to other people and to nature and to the cosmos and that... Uh, you know, will remind future generations to not look back on us too harshly because when they have the opportunity to actually build a world on those principles, they will have those principles because we left them behind. Yeah. That's me being well, optimistic. Not, <laughs> what I was going to say to infuse a little optimism, I, mean, I'm, I don't know how many people listening to this are, are right now about to tie a noose. <laughs> um, I do think, though, I do think, though, that, uh, you know, look, What's what's anytime you've ever talked to like one of your normie friends, right? And said, I'm a socialist. What is their generally their first rebuttal? It can't work because of human nature. Yeah. Right. It's human. And you know what? I used to, I used to rail against that. And I, I, I now as I'm getting older, I think that maybe there was something to what they were saying. Perhaps it is maybe not intrinsically naturally human nature, but it is learned human behavior to behave within the society that we built much like you've talked about in your other podcasts about how art is only a reflection of the size, the society, which was born. So to our, our inner beliefs based on and founded on the world that we live in, even the techniques that we use to combat what we don't like is still formed in the culture that we were raised in. Uh, so how do we change human nature? And I think, and I mean, you and I have talked about this off air before, but that's where I think the role of spirituality can play a, a, a larger component in that. And I think that's one of the massive failings of the left leftist movement over the last, I don't know, 80 years, 60 years at least, was this sort of rejection of spirituality as a guide for transforming oneself. We just were read a book and were and were radicalized and with all the components of the consumerist culture that we were raised in marched into battle 
Yeah. You know, and and it's like, okay, they've got a gun. Now I've got a gun. Now we're just at war with each other. And maybe I'll overcome them with force. But but we look at Soviet, the Soviet Union, which, again, so many Marxists have romanticized and look at the period, look at look at the uh, the trajectory of that country over time with the needing to create order at the point of a gun. You, you oftentimes end up becoming some version of what you were trying to escape. It might've been better. I think certainly you could look at the Soviet union and think that it was better than, you know, it was under the czar, but it's not exactly the goal either. Right. It wasn't I mean, exactly what Marx hoped for. I mean, a really good, uh, you know, there was once a point I think where you could even make a, uh, an allowance for social transformation being complicated and difficult and murderous even. Um, mm-hmm. And the you could make an argument that like yes we have been we've inherited a mess and we're trying to clean it up and you gotta crack a few eggs and make an omelet any other way that you could you could explain it right except for that now in 2021 you're looking back on 30 years since the end of the Soviet Union mm-hmm. which is to say it didn't work as much as I wish that it worked it didn't that was and that was 30 years ago right was that 40 years ago hold on I don't know how to do math 1991. And, and- Almost, almost because I was born in, what, what year did you say? 1991. Okay. Well, I was yeah. born in 81. So it's 30 years. Yeah. 30 years. Um, so whatever else you might've been able to say about it while it was there, I think at this point it's the postmortem is, well, that's not going to be it. Now there are lessons to learn, but I think romanticizing it doesn't help anybody any more than romanticizing any aspect of the past because the past was so great that I don't know how we got here. I think there are aspects of the past, which we should want to revive, but there's obviously like, we have to move, we have to move into something and not back into whatever brought us here in the first place. I I agree. And I think that we, what we should do is, is as you're, as you're saying, learn from those things, Uh, take from the past, the things that maybe we've abandoned that, that actually held value. I was joking earlier about like, you know, I romanticized this idea that if we just smoked some weed and read some poetry and had free love, that the world would be a better place, but it might be a better place. Listen, if we actually all did do that, it would probably be at least a little better. Definitely would be more fun for certain. The world is a very unfun place these days. However, obviously I think that if we're, if we set aside the, the joking, that cannot be, solely enough right though i don't think it's nothing i do think that when i wake up in the morning and i don't doom scroll for two hours but i do read a poem i do think it transforms my day i do mm-hmm. think that when i perform ceremonial magic and ritual work and i and i evoke a, a connection to the divine i do feel like that has transformed me i think that it has opened my awareness sometimes for, but, but this whole pessimistic conversation that we're having is due to some of that awareness opening within my brain I don't know that I've come to the point where I have a solution for it, but I can at least acknowledge it. And I can even acknowledge my shortcomings and my, my romanticized belief on how to attack these, these problems of the world. Just like Lana Wachowski is like, just imagines if the love will conquer. It's like, it's like Chris Nolan, love will conquer all. Right. I love it. That's awesome. That's an awesome belief. I don't know if that's enough, but it's, it, maybe it's a start. Maybe if we could if we could have one big takeaway from all of this, it's that cynicism and pessimism is valid. 
It's rooted in history. It's all around us. But we've got to start somewhere and we've got to do something. So so why not start with those things and, and see what happens? Let's not delude ourselves like, like the boomers of the 60s that all we need is love, right? Because that right. obviously didn't work. And, and let's not delude ourselves like Gen X and think all we need is information because that didn't work. But perhaps right. we can... T- we could take what what did work from each of those things, incorporate them into our lives, but know that it's not. But that's not the end of the story. That there is more. To, there is more. There is much more after happily ever after than I think most of the last two to three generations have um, accepted. Yeah, I mean, maybe what we need is a a little less conversation. And a little more action. <laughs> yeah. And I think, and I think there's something to building smaller communities. You know, we, you and I have talked about this ad nauseum since we were teenagers, this, this we're constantly trying to recapture this moment that we had in our personal lives where there were 20 odd people sitting at Denny's eating French fries, uh, communal French fries and bottomless cups of coffee. We have been for the last 20 years, desperately trying to reclaim this brief moment in time, ignoring much of the drama that existed in that community as well. Yeah. Um, trying to recapture this, 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 this sense, this feeling, this emotion. I think that's a worthy cause. And I, and I do think that at least there could be success in that. Even if perhaps on the global scale, we're still woefully behind and outnumbered, and outgunned building smaller communities, you know, asking your friends to not go to the oomph club, but, but instead engage in a dialect that I think that there is, you know, getting off of social media and meeting people in real life face to face and having a conversation and, and re and reintroducing that human connection. I, 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 it can't be a bad thing, right? It's got to no. do something. Right. It's definitely not going to be a net negative if people um, regain a sense of community, because I will say that um, one of the themes of let's go say the podcast that I'm on one of the podcasts, one of the themes of the regrettable century is that uh, that we continually hit on is that we are the children of counter revolution, that mm-hmm. the by virtue of having not succeeded two generations ago, um, we exist in a world which is the reaction to, you know, the, to the sixties, to the cultural attitudes, to the, um, to the movements, whatever. And that means like it has, it has meant a breakup of not just the social movements uh, or the organizations of labor or whatever, but also kind of the breakup of community overall. Like there is a, there's this really, I think should be a scary uh, phenomenon where you have a decline in like attendance of churches Mm -hmm. and a corresponding increase in a sense of spirituality, Um, which on the surface might be good. Maybe there's a lot of people embracing kind of new or old, uh, old time religion. Right. But I think that, that upon closer investigation, what you actually see is just as individuals, people adopting a spiritual, a more spiritual worldview as they seek answers. But 
not seeking answers together in communities, not in not just not churches, but also not covens, also not any other way in which people gather together to seek common engagement. You also see it well, kind of. Let me just interrupt real quick. Kind of, but you, you do see it, but not in the way that you mean, because what you see it is online. You see right. It online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. The, which the is I, not the same thing. Right. No, that's an important point because I think people, especially younger people, um, this is my this is my chance to show my gray hairs here. Um, they're raised in a world without community where their parents mm-hmm. aren't members of uh, civic organizations or uh, fraternal or orders. Like they don't go down to the lodge, whether it's the Elk Lodge or the Knights of Columbus or the Freemasons. There, um, there's no like town hall. There's no block party. Like more and more young people are raised without community. So when they find it online and it's like a pale echo of what it really means to have it, they don't know that it's a pale echo because it's more of a community than the one they have sitting in their room by themselves in the suburb without the internet with just, and it's, yeah. And it's familiar. It's familiar because I I've, I've seen this said on Twitter and I think it's accurate. You oftentimes see people talk about like the occult community, right? Like it's a block party, like it's a, like it's a lodge, like it's any of these things, but it's not, it's more equatable to a marketplace yeah where ev- where everyone's at their booths and they're all shouting at each other to buy their shit and you're cr- you're crowded amongst a bunch of strangers that are there for a reason they're bu- there to buy the used pottery and and succulents and whatever else is provided <laughs> old old band posters like they're all there for that so there's like that shared interest but that's but that is again it is what we the generation of the maw have right. only ever known because we grew up. Where do we hang out? I mean, yeah. even Denny's is just a restaurant. It's a chain. You know, we met Bobby at the mall, right? We hung out at hot topic. Like we're the generation of the mall. And so when we go to build community in whatever form that we can, what we've created is just a digital marketplace, a digital shopping mall for us edgelords to hang out at and, and convince ourselves that there's some form of community that exists and, and maybe there is, but again, I think that as we normalize that, we, we move away from something that actually might be more impactful on us personally. And I think that you, your, your podcast, especially the regrettable century has highlighted some of the growing anxieties that this increasingly online life has created uh, once we sort of plug into the Twittering machine. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think a lot about how, like, I think, I think what you said is like, it's, it's really, it's really good. I think that's going to stick with me for a while, actually, that like, even the version of community that we kind of are lamenting its loss is already a really decrepit, degenerate form of it compared to like a time when the community was the neighborhood. And so like, so there are these stories of evictions in, during the Great Depression in New York. Um, and the, uh, you know, the landlord would evict a tenant because they couldn't pay. And the whole building would come out and they'd carry everything back up from the curb and move them back in. So when the landlord, um, you know, was like going to come back and do some repairs to find a new tenant, they'd find that the tenant had been moved back in. 
and they call mm-hmm. the police and they'd be like, you're not supposed to be here. And they give them, escort them off the property. And then they take all the stuff back out. And then everybody in the building would come and grab it and bring it all back in again. And at a certain point, because this happens block after block, right? Mm-hmm. The end result of that is that you get rent control laws in New York. Right. And it's because that's what a community actually is. It's a, it's a community of interests, not of like interests in the sense of like a, you know, we met Bobby because he was wearing a Misfits hoodie and we liked the Misfits. Um, and it's not like that's not cool or whatever, but I mean like interest in the sense of like, if you can throw my neighbor out because she's behind on her rent because her husband got laid off because, you know, the, this is the 30s. It's very gendered in terms of who the provider is or whatever. I'm mm-hmm. going to be next. Right. Right. And if I'm next, then the next person I care about couldn't can't be far behind. So we're a community because we have a shared set of interests in making it hard to get rid of people when they're down on their luck. Make make and, and because of that, you have like a material way in which you act upon the world. But it has this kind of a spiritual aspect to it because it makes people who otherwise don't have very much in common in terms of even languages that they speak. You know, these, these people speak Italian. These people speak Hungarian, but nobody's going to get thrown out on the streets today. That's right. community. Um, so I, I definitely think I agree with you that like, Figuring out some way by by whatever means can be made available to even just take steps back in the direction of making community something that is that important that you you rise and fall based on the strength of your community. Like yeah. like these, you know, I already gave the, the, the rent control example, but this is not just isolated in New York. It's also all throughout the Midwest. Farmers like the banks would foreclose on their farms and they'd have an auction. And all of the local farmers would show up with shotguns and intimidate anybody trying to bid so that the guy that just lost his farm could bid on his farm and buy it for a penny because that's what a community is. Uh, That's the world we have to live in if we're going to have any hope at all. Um, And if all we can do is say that, then at least we're not just saying, you got to wake up, man. It's like, well, not only do you got to wake up, man. But also, you have to have a vision of the world you want to live in. If you're going to embody it, if you're going to bring it to bear in the world, you actually have to know what it looks like, I think. Because otherwise, all you can ever do is react negatively. And 30, 40, 50, 70 years of that has obviously gotten us here. Well, it's funny that you keep saying the term wake up because the movie ends, much like the first movie ends, with with the song Wake Up from Rage Against the Machine. Except uh, it's not Rage Against the Machine this time. It's this band called Brass Against, which is most famously known because uh, they're a a brass band cover band where the singer famously pissed on someone on stage. Uh, That's their claim to fame. And this version, I mean, it's not a bad version of the song, but I can't help but notice the the sort of farce in it that (laughs) I just realized Brass Against. Yeah, I think that's the name of the band. That's terrible. Well, that's the point, right? <laughs> because that's that's where we're at. This this verse, this idea of waking. We're still asking people to wake up, but it's like almost like clown music. It's like boom, 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 boom. you know, it's it's <laughs> it, it it's it's like polka. It's it's a it the the whole of it is a joke in some regard. Um, I think that we you're right. Like okay, look, maybe maybe we look at the world and there's a tsunami coming towards us, but you know what? Maybe we could pick up that scared child. And comfort it mm-hmm. 
You know, maybe we can at least make the valid attempt to reunite people so that they can say they love each other before they they get engulfed by the by the tide. There are things that we can do to at least form regain our humanity, even if it's on a personal or small communal level. And fucking hell, if that's the best we can do, that's not nothing. Sure. That that is a that is the world. That is the fight that is worth fighting that's that's the fight that's worth giving the world is that and i think a connection through spirituality and i think a, commu- a connection through your neighbors both literally and figuratively i think an inclusion of acceptance i do think that the and an unplugging from the internet when possible uh, i do think that that is at least a step in a direction that allows us to save our souls if not the society as a whole yeah we have to ensure that when archaeologists come and uncover the 21st century Pompeii, they don't find all of the bodies in their own bedrooms by themselves. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly that. So with that, that visual of optimism, <laughs> I want to I thank you, sir, for coming on the podcast. I want to give you the opportunity to promote uh, the 57 podcasts that you're currently on, um, all run by Mark Zuckerberg, and and let people know if they've listened to this conversation and they're saying and, and if they say to themselves, "This shot of pessimism is right up my alley. <laughs> I'd like to learn more about how I could apply this and marry this with my leftist politics." What are some of the places that folks can find you? Well, um, so the principal podcast is the Regrettable Century, where we talk about the regrettable nature of our past and current century uh, and in really similar terms to what, you know, we've done today. Um, mm-hmm. And so if, if this conversation does it for you, um, we definitely have had uh, discussions about aspects of this, especially like the children of counter revolution is a, is the title of one of our episodes. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, there are others, right. Then there's um, the measures taken, which is real nerd hours for the, for the super geeks who wanted to, it's a, it's a, we're trying to reconstruct the history of Marxism as a body of thought as to try to uncover the method and shed the baggage of like inherited political positions. Um, mm-hmm. So like, that's like, you know, they're like reading lists. Um, it's, it's dork shit. And then, and then the other podcast that I do is called a final conflict. And it's just, um, I have a friend in another country and we sometimes get together and talk about how from his vantage point, the world looks like this. And from my vantage point, it looks like that. And it often it appears that it's the same uh, mm-hmm. view. So three tiers of crankery for, for everybody out there. Well, listen, if people are listening to this podcast, they're used to it. So uh, you, I think, again, all joking aside, there is value in it. All your podcasts are very interesting to me. They help inform my my understanding of the world. Uh, quite a bit. And I think that if, especially for, because there is this wave of interest in what we perceive to be leftist politics. Uh, many people call are openly calling them socialists and themselves socialists in the, in a time not so distant from a time when that would have gotten you, that would have gotten your mom to cry and throw all your books away. Yeah, uh, I, I, I distinctly remember that exact time. Yeah. It's about 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> If you're looking, if if it, if that is of interest to you, or frankly, if you're against the idea of socialists, 
I do recommend listening to these podcasts uh, if for no other reason than increasing our awareness, our, our intelligence, our information, our knowledge. And while I don't think waking up is enough and I don't think all you need is love is enough, I do think that the combination of those two things with a healthy dose of spirituality and uh, maybe copious amounts of drug use when applicable safely uh, can at least allow us to live a world slightly more enchanted. So, Jason, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, you're not on social media, so you can't follow him. Just go listen to the podcast. That's where, that's where the gold is. And uh, I'm sure once I am back from New York, we will have many uh, a walk and coffees in our future. So I appreciate you and thank you for your time and insights. And we'll chat soon. Yeah, thanks for letting me come on. And uh, can't wait to talk again. I want to thank Jason once again for coming on the podcast and offering such in-depth insight into sort of uh, the world that we have built, the society and structure that we have built, and especially as it relates to our ability to transcend it, to transcend the chains of the society and the building of community and the structure of it. And really what we have left to offer in, in terms of in regards to resistance you know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll notice that the theme of community is a common one. It's one that I bring up quite often, kind of no matter what the general topic is. And part of the reason for that is because this podcast is designed to not be a podcast about magic. That is not what I'm here to talk about. I certainly have not been practicing it long enough to even attempt to try to present myself as any sort of authority on the matter. But it's a podcast about culture and society. And yes, art. And because I happen to have found great solace in the practice of astrotheurgy, of course, my perspective on all of these items will be colored by my spiritual practice. And the reason I bring this up is because so often what I see when people talk about uh, magic or the occult or witchcraft is it's so insulated into academia. It's book reading. It's uh, Wikipedia level explanations it's 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 informational strictly but where's the application or conversely it's just memeified you know crowley memes and witchcraft memes and and you know gnostic memes and there's nothing wrong with that i you know i i enjoy a good meme just as much as the next person but i feel like we as a culture, as a society, as a people, as a humanity, must start looking to apply the things that we believe to the world around us, at very minimum, our immediate space. I'm often reminded of a lesson that I learned as a child when we used to go camping, which is to leave the campsite just a little bit better than you found it. Clean up your immediate area and then clean up another 10 or 15 feet beyond that so that the next person that comes in comes into a much nicer area. And if they apply the same logic, then eventually you get a clean park. I think that some of the topics that we talked about on this podcast might seem dire at moments, certainly cynical, but there's always a glimmer of hope in the end because no matter how dark it gets and no matter how heavy or frustrating or perhaps even hopeless when we look around the world and we see what we've built and the monstrosity of that what we have built, no matter how much weight that may be placed on our shoulders, it is incumbent upon us to always try. I referenced the Hemingway quote earlier, the world is a good place worth fighting for. 
the second part of that line in the movie seven is, and I agree with half of that in the podcast, I questioned my belief of it. But as I listened back to this podcast, as I edited, and as I now record this outro, I too believe in half of it. The world may not be a good place, but it is damn sure worth fighting for. If for no other reason than because the fight for the world, in air quotes, is ultimately the fight for our soul. And why not put all your effort into that? So I encourage you, I invite you, I urge you, and I challenge you. Go build a world that you enjoy living in. Let's start revisiting tangible experiences. Let's get on the road. Let's meet a friend for coffee. Let's gather a group of folks over for reading groups or study or just discussion or just go on a walk. All those things are important and they're not only important in some sort of nostalgic romantic way, although it's that as well, they're important because they're nutrition for our spirit and building blocks by which we can then start to affect change beyond ourselves. So I want to thank you all. I want to thank Jason I appreciate everyone for listening. And until next time, go climb that mountain, go make your world, and gold rings on you all.